We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword and Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1981's Scanners, written and directed by David Cronenberg. Here's a clip. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. And your flesh. And your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding, the terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. <laughs> One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners, their thoughts can kill. All right, that was a clip from 1981 Scanners, again, written and directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, my name is Patrick Murphy, and joining me, of course, is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. So glad to be on this very episode, because uh, David Cronenberg is one of my five favorite filmmakers. Interesting. All right. Um, well, also joining us, and I'm not sure where David Cronenberg stands in his pantheon, is a returning guest, Mike Warby. I love, I love David Cronenberg. I've seen most of his movies, even like weird one-offs like that spider movie he did with ray fines really i'm just happy to be here when at a time when everybody feels like their head is exploding to talk about scanners <laughs> for real spider's a great film i couldn't maybe i watched it when i was young. i was like 18 or 19 when i watched it and i was like i i was like i don't get it <laughs> it's a really good movie you know i'm not the biggest cronenberg guy but I did end up picking this movie. I, I always find his movies to be a little cold. And, you know, ever since I first saw Videodrome, I thought, eh, I don't know. I'm not really on board with a lot of this stuff. Cold and clinical is the way the dude rolls. It's cold. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's just not, doesn't connect with me in, in as, as some other, like cold and clinical works for me sometimes. Like Robert Eggers, the witch, you know, is oh, I would Kubrick. Kubrick very could cold. be very cold. And, and, and Kubrick, clinical. yes. And I love Barry Lyndon and that's, a very cold. I, yeah, movie. I love Kubrick. That's my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. What? Yep. Okay. Sorry, we're here to talk about Scanners. <laughs> it's a really good one. But yeah, so I picked Scanners because I'd never <laughs> seen it and I kind of like the idea of it. And Cronenberg goes back and forth with me. Like, I do really like a history of violence. And like I said, I like The Fly. 
I've seen some of those other movies and been okay with them. I think Existence, if I remember, I liked fairly, you know, it was okay. Um, so I thought, you know what? I've never seen Skaters. I'm going to pick this movie. And it kind of landed for me right around in the middle of Cronenberg stuff. There was stuff that I liked. I, I do think he's a very good filmmaker, but I could also see where the writing was rushed and looking up the production notes, they were writing this movie as they were making it. And I think that's fairly obvious, but other than the outside of that, he's, he's a good filmmaker that makes a lot of interesting choices. So scanners, I enjoyed it. I in like kind of like the middle level of Cronenberg stuff where I maybe didn't get as much depth as a history of violence, but I liked it more than something like say Videodrome. That's kind of where I, uh, wow. I think Videodrome is one of the greatest movies of the nineties. I think I like every single one of his movies. My least favorite is Cosmopolis. So I'm not going to say every single one of his movies I think is a masterpiece, but I enjoyed my time with every single one of his movies. However, The Man has about 10 movies that I just love, like on my list of the greatest horror films ever made. I'm a huge fan of Scanners, but the thing is, I had only seen this film like once or twice in the past, and it's been so long since I watched it. So I was so excited that you chose this movie, Patrick. We actually reviewed this movie way back on the Sorted Cinema podcast like years ago. So if I can find the audio, I will attach it to the end of this episode. It was me, Edgar Chapu, and Simon Howell who reviewed this movie. So I remembered liking the movie, but sitting down to watch it in 2021, I thought I would be disappointed. I thought it would be one of those films that's very dated. I remember the main actor not being very good, which we can talk about a little later on. Um, His performance is very wooden. He comes across as a robot which maybe is the point of his character speaking of clinical speaking of clinical yeah in 52 years since he's made his first film david cronenberg has given us some of the most memorable amazing unforgettable disgusting scenes in all of cinema the most iconic scenes in all of horror films so even if you don't necessarily like his movies as a whole the dude has given us some incredible moments in the history of cinema that we just can't not overlook. Absolutely. not. I'm not dismissing him at all. He's an exceptional filmmaker that doesn't always connect with me. But yes, everything you say is true. So this movie, of course, gave us maybe his most iconic scene of all time. And of course, I'm, I'm referring to the scene in which the head explodes. So Future Generations only know Scanners has an internet gif. It's the movie with the one scene that was chosen as one of the 100 most scary, shocking, repulsive, surprising moments in all of like cinematic history. But for me, Scanners is more than just an exploding head. Like, yes, that is an incredible scene. And to this day, I still do not understand how they did it, considering that there was no CGI. It is an amazing feat of practical special effects. But I do think that from the start to finish, this is a pretty... A pretty good movie considering that he was writing the movie as they were making the movie. So for anyone who doesn't know, in the early 80s and late 70s, you were able to get money from the government to make movies. Because so, for example, let's say you're a doctor or a lawyer and it comes to the end of the year and you've made a certain amount of money and you're going to pay a lot of taxes. So in order to avoid paying taxes, you can invest a certain amount of money into a project like a movie and therefore you wouldn't get dinged by the government for 
paying back a lot of money in taxes. Instead, you can use that money and invest in a movie, which therefore can bring you a ton of money if it makes money at the box office. Cronenberg basically got a phone call at the last minute saying, hey, we need to make a movie now because we have a shit ton of money to use. And so he had to write the script as they're making a movie. So like, that's the thing that's mind blowing. So again, he made this movie in like 1980. So no CGI, it's still a low budget film. And he's shooting the film as he's writing the movie. And yet he manages to make a movie that's really, really good. And it was a box office sensation. It was his first movie that actually was number one at the box office. So that's pretty impressive. So I'm guessing it was it was um, filmed in sequence then? That's a good question. I, I couldn't find any production notes as to how that was. It's always an interesting thing when you're writing it as you're going. I think he he had a basic structure early on. It was based on an old idea of his. So I think he had the, the basic structure of the movie early on. But I think uh, you can sort of see with a lot of the sets, they, they do reuse a lot of locations and sets. And so I think it made it a lot easier for them if they had to go back and, and create a scene that wasn't there before that didn't exist. Right. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, the basic idea is probably they're following. So they're, they're, they're probably knew immediately, Hey, we want to have this mall sequence. So we're going to have to secure this mall and we're never coming back here. So we got <laughs> done right the first time, <laughs> but, uh, a lot of the other places it's like, okay, we, we can at least return here. We can rewrite dialogue if we need to. If we say like, Oh shoot, we never explained that part of the story. We'll go back and film something really quick that makes that make sense. Um, I'm guessing that's how it happened. I couldn't really find anything on that, though, in, in the quick search I did. So I don't know if you know, but the scene, the famous scene in which the dude's head explodes, it was supposed to be the first scene in the movie. So the original cut actually opens with that scene. But test audiences just couldn't handle it. So basically, because the test audiences said that they couldn't connect to the rest of the movie because the exploding head was just it blew them away and both in a good way and a bad way. Like it took them out of the movie. They decided to move and shift the scene later on. So I believe it's a third or fourth sequence in the film, but initially it opened with the head exploding. So I'm not sure like how he wrote it. If he wrote it in order, it, it would be a great question to ask David Cronenberg if we could ever meet the dude. Yeah, no question. Um, Mike, as far as, like, what's your history with this movie? Have you seen this movie a lot? Is this something that you saw a long time ago and you've watched over the years? Well, it's funny because um, Rick asked me if I was interested in, talk in talking about this one. And I told him the, the story that me and my brother used to actually my, – my dad put this on for us one time. He had the VHS tape back in the day, and he thought we were going to just be, like, blown away by how scary it was, right? But we got to the head explosion scene, and we just couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> But, I mean, we were teenage boys, right? We were, like, probably, like, 13 and 14 or something. So we just couldn't stop laughing. And we, like, rewound that. And when our dad wasn't home, we would just rewatch that scene over and over again and just laugh our asses off. So it kind of has a special place in my heart just because of that stupid memory. But I bought it myself as an adult and rewatched it a few times. And kind of like you, Patrick, it's not my favorite Cronenberg. It's somewhere in the middle for me. But I enjoy, like Rick said, I enjoy almost every movie I've ever seen of his, like to varying degrees. Like some of them are more five out of 10 territory, but there's never been a Cronenberg movie I've watched where I was like, that was dog shit. Yeah. I've never thought that it, there was the movie was like a hack job or anything like that. It's just when I write Cronenberg movies, it's on how much do I can actually connect to the story that he's trying to tell. And so that's where I'd say this is right around in the middle. 
Uh, his talent's always on display. It's just sometimes, like, some, with something like Crash, even, I don't consider that to be a horrible movie. <laughs> I just don't connect with it whatsoever or the characters. See, and I, I understand. Um, when it comes to the story and the characters, I can totally understand the disconnect between the viewer and the movie and the characters. But I think what I love about Cronenberg is his directorial style, his atmosphere, the mood. All of his films are drenched in the sort of like dark brooding atmosphere. Like you said, it's cold, it's clinical. I think I just like Cronenberg because he's so different than every director out there. Like a lot of people try to compare him to David Lynch. And I don't think that, that they are at all close. Like, yes, they both make very bizarre films. But in terms of their style and the mood and the atmosphere of their films, I don't think they're, that they are, are at all close. Um, have you seen Stereo, his first film? I have not, no. Because Scanners sort of feels like a sequel to Stereo. Like it even references a key moment in the movie in which a telepath tries to get rid of the voices in his brain by drilling a hole between his eyes. I kind of feel Scanners is an unofficial sequel to Stereo. Stereo was an exploration of mind sharing and Scanners sort of like picks up on that theme and explores questions of identity, which... To be fair, so do most of Cronenberg films, but yeah, I just, I just, I just think it's really uh, interesting to like. I would love to watch Stereo again and watch Stereo and Scanners back to back because I do think there's a lot of similarities between between the two films. Is Stereo a short or is it an actual movie? It was like a, a student film, low budget. I'm not sure if I would okay. call it a short. I have to see how long the film is. Well, I always thought Shivers was his first movie. That's why I was asking. No, Shivers was his first commercial film. Scanners oh. was his seventh film, right? It was his fifth commercial film, but he had made two movies prior to like independent low budget films. So yeah, Scanners was number seven. It was Stereo Crimes of the Future. And Stereo is an hour and five minutes. So it's just short of five minutes to I mean, I think to be considered a feature, you got to be an hour and ten minutes. Okay. Yeah, I, I could go back and forth on that one. I'm, I don't know. It's it's hard to be called a short film though when you're an hour and five minutes. <laughs> yeah, sixty-five minutes is pretty long. Because uh, there are some animated movies I swear have have made it into theaters around that time. Um, all right, I want to ask something really quick because something that was brought up in so much of what you guys are talking about is that head explosion scene, right? The head explosion scene, not only like how it was done, but how great it looks and, and the scene itself. This is one question that I had to myself after seeing that scene. Did the movie peak too early with that scene? I don't think it's the best scene in the movie, but we're supposed to talk about this after the break. So sure. No, I don't want to talk about the favorite, the best scene in the movie, but it is regardless of what you think it's the best scene in the movie or favorite scene in the movie. It is a, it is a highlight for sure. And that never the, the movie never goes quite that crazy again. No, but the, the the interesting thing about Scanners is like David Cronenberg is a filmmaker who's clearly far more intelligent than the average moviegoer and the average filmmaker. And yet he does love staging action sequences. Like I can see David Cronenberg straight up making an action film, like a straight up action film. Like, I mean, History of Violence and Eastern Promises are heavy on action, but I mean, you know, like I can actually see this dude making a movie like Fast and the Furious, like no, like no joke. Like he would actually make a really good action film. So throughout the film, there are several action sequences that there is a car chase, which I think is really well staged and 
extremely well filmed given the fact that it's a low budget there's the sequence in which the two leads are running away from four hitmen there is the ending which i'll talk about after the break and there's the opening i i think that was a great way to open up a movie like having the homeless man walk into a shopping mall and then they open the film by making us the viewers think that he is the villain so yes it is the highlight but i think i think shifting it to like the third or fourth sequence in the film was the right move i think if it opened the film yeah for sure it would have been like whoa this is like you can't just open a film with this scene he he never goes that oh, oh so over the top even in the ending i would argue which we'll get into after the break when uh when you when we talk about that but um he never, in my opinion, never goes over the top so far again. And it's, I wondered if it was kind of like, you know, Brian De Palma's The Fury ends on a, a body exploding. So kind of a similar thing, uh, kind of a shocking, like, whatever. It, it looks it looks great, too. That's also a memorable part from that movie. But it ends on that note. And I wonder if the head exploding thing would have been, it, for me, it was, it was a great moment because I'm going to talk more about the the opening scene in the mall because you know it, w- after the break that'll probably be my my choice. Spoiler alert! But um, I just when that head exploded, I was super super invested into into this thing, and I wonder if it's because I was I was getting super excited because at that point the movie held a lot of promise, but it seems to it, especially in just sort of bonkersness, and then it seems to sort of slide sort of gently down from there. And it never peaks again, in my opinion. Never really peaked in that craziness. Yeah, it kind of goes into sci-fi mumbo-jumbo mode for a lot of the middle act of the movie. And it's like, yeah, so it's sort of like it's bookended by these incredible scenes at the beginning and the end. I love the head-exploding scene. I love what I've always called the scan-off at the end. But the middle of the movie is kind of just fine. It's just like the the link between those two incredible scenes at the beginning and end for me. I think we are all on the same page. I I, I agree. Actually, in my notes, I I made the effort in highlighting Brian De Palma's Carrie and Brian De Palma's The Fury. The Fury is actually one of my favorite De Palma films. I think it's incredibly underrated. Scanners, of course, wasn't the first film to deal with people with unusual telepathic and telekinetic powers right the palmas carry is maybe the first film that really became a box office success and a runaway sensation so we had carrie released in 76 the fury released in 78 and here comes david cronenberg small time canadian independent filmmaker making a movie low budget that also deals with people with unusual telepathic and telekinetic powers so I think maybe they thought they needed to open the movie big because maybe they wouldn't be able to hold people's attention because everyone would remember those two brilliant films by Brian De Palma. I don't know. I get what you're saying, and I do agree that he does an amazing job of opening the movie and drawing the viewer into the narrative and the action, and specifically with the opening scene and the head explosion scene. I do like the third act, I guess you can say, if we're going to break this down to three acts. I like the third act. I love the first act. The middle act is sluggish. The investigation portion is... Uh, is uh, And that's where you can really tell. It's that portion where you can tell that they're rushing the writing, that, that he didn't quite have everything worked out, that he didn't have the mystery worked out. Because in the end, the, there aren't payoffs for a lot of the stuff. It, it's kind of like he's... 
he's fashioning it together as he goes, and it's fairly obvious there's some logical leaps that he that he had to make. And I'm assuming simply because of his production schedule. I guess we can talk about it now. I mean, the problem with the middle act is it focuses so heavily on the main actor investigating the quote-unquote mystery. Like you said, there really isn't much of a mystery to investigate because of the screenplay. But the main actor, Stephen Lack, I mean, he's a better Lack. painter. <laughs> right? His name's Lack. Yeah, he's a better painter in real life than he is an actor. I mean, like, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with this dude. Like, I, I'm really, I, I do not know if Cronenberg sat down with the actor and they decided to, they decided that he should have a very wooden, robotic performance. He's so dead-eyed. Like, he has no charisma. It's unreal. It's it's like he looks like a, a cardboard cutout at times. It's not like it's like his face is not even moving when he talks. Like he's acting alongside Jennifer O'Neill. And I don't know, dudes, like Jennifer O'Neill is a gorgeous lady. And she was like top build at the time because she was actually like a huge star. And you have her next to Stephen Lack. Well, yeah, she does a great, a great job, too. Oh, Michael Ironside, although it was very disturbing to see him with hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she does a great job. He Robotic is the perfect word that you use for him. He would be playing, it seems like he's playing an android. No emotions, zero emotions whatsoever throughout this entire movie. I'm really not sure what his character is thinking at any point throughout this movie. And you're right, maybe that was a deliberate choice. It's hard to say, but it, there are a couple scenes where it's very distracting and where it's chuckle worthy um well and also like it doesn't help that you have michael ironside on screen as well and the movie pulses with menace because his performance is fantastic very few people ooze evil just like michael ironside does uh, well, although menace, he has like sinister menace yeah he has like a natural authority too it's always great when they put him in a leadership position because of that voice and just his demeanor he always seems like an authority. And even when he's not playing an evil guy, like in Starship Troopers or Top Gun, right? Like he still has that, you better do what this guy says. Okay, <laughs> but you know what? If we were to make a list to rank all of the leading men in David Cronenberg films, Stephen Lack would be at the bottom of the list. Like look at the list, okay? Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Walken, James Woods, Jeremy Irons, Viggo Mortensen, Peter Weller, even Robert Pattinson. Like, I don't... No, you're right. I mean, Lack is... <laughs> he's, he doesn't belong. And I guess he was chosen because of his eyes. That's the funny thing that you brought up, the dead eyes thing. Because I get, uh, from what I re read, he was chosen because of his... I believe he has blue eyes, right? Wait, oh, I thought I thought it's because he doesn't blink. I was like, now you... Now... <laughs> <laughs> I, tr I decided to cast this dude in my movie because he does not blink. He's always processing. Everything is processing. Okay, with... but okay, but regardless, if you like all of his movies, or like you know, for example, you said you didn't connect with uh, Videodrome, but like, yeah. let's just look at this lineup of movies for a second: Shivers, Rabbit, The Brood, Videodrome, Dead Zone, The Fly, Scanners, all within a matter of like what eight years? Unbelievable, amazing. Yeah, Some very I... disturbing movies too. The Brood haunted me for years, man. Yeah, those creepy little kids with their weird gremlin faces, man. And when she lifts up her <laughs> robe and, like, the thing's growing on her, oh, man, that movie is nightmare cool. <laughs> yeah, this one doesn't quite go down that route. This is more, like, spy thriller stuff. I guess this would be Cronenberg's 
a mixture of Cronenberg stuff and Hitchcockian sort of, you know, wrong guy, wrong place, wrong time, man on the run, even though he is the investigator sort of driving things forward. He also is the person that's least in the know of everything that's going on. He is, he is sort of the dupe. He's the patsy in many ways. He's being used, manipulated by everybody. So it had kind of has kind of that feel uh, to it as well. There's a little more fun to be had in Scanners than in some of Cronenberg's other movies. Which is interesting because I do feel it is a fun movie to watch, although it digs into ideas of private companies weaponizing whatever they can weaponize. Sure, and, and pharmaceutical companies uh, lying to patients and experimenting on them via, you know, via drugs that they're distributing for another another purpose for sure yeah, just I, the, I think... sorry just the angle of the ethical business practices of big pharmaceutical companies sounds like a really heavy not so fun movie experience like the way it's lit the with the action scenes based on what you were saying about the corporate angle i think it's really interesting that it's um it's birth control medication is how they're actually giving this to people which is i i think really interesting because I, that's probably inspired by that real life case where people were becoming um, like they were having sort of mutated babies based on taking that birth control. Yeah, there was some I, I know that there was, was it a, a drug in Germany. Is that what it what it was? I can't recall, but I know in real life there was a birth control that a lot of women took. And yes. because of that, like an entire generation had all these problems and mutations. And I think that's probably what they're drawing from with this like nefarious plot. Yeah, it was acknowledged that it was based a little bit on that real life incident. So there's no question, like they're drawing upon that, and they're, um, you know, mixing it with the the sci-fi element is is great because that's what makes those serious issues. That's what sci-fi can do so well. They can take a serious issue and they can at least make a fun story out of it. Whereas an investigative drama wouldn't necessarily have that. Um, so no, but you could almost make like a Michael Clayton esque thriller yes. out of this kind of story. Like you could go totally the opposite way and do it the other way. But this is like you said, more of like a fun. Let's what kind of wacky ideas can we come up with with this concept? Yeah, it's I wouldn't I don't want to say sugarcoating the pill because I don't I think the main point of this movie is to entertain and to to explore some of the sci fi stuff. I think that the the serious issues that it's presenting, those just are kind of add depth to it, add other layers that aren't the focus of the movie. I don't think Cronenberg set out to, to make any criticisms, you know, with this movie, but it's something that he's able to add in and that sort of delivers those sort of messages in interesting ways. I think that's what sci-fi has always been great for, especially sci-fi that focuses on sci-fi first and then starts adding different layers that, that can be thought-provoking for people that can sort of seep into their, their subconscious as they're watching it, um, as they're watching things explode. <laughs> At the end of the day, the product that we have, like the end result, is pretty incredible. And if you just point just to the scene in which the dude's head explodes again like that special effect it's it's there's a reason why it's considered one of the greatest scenes in any horror film or sci-fi movie ever because it's amazing like i would put the effects of this movie on par with the effects of john carpenter's the thing like it is that good like maybe it's not as effects heavy but the effects that we do see and have in this in this movie are just as good especially the last scene which i'll talk about after the break that's funny. That's actually what I was thinking of for a comparison too, in terms of like how successful the practical effects are in this movie. I was thinking of the thing which comes out a few years later, even this, and probably has a much bigger budget. 
Um, but yeah, the practical effects in this movie are wild. Like, especially when you get to that end scene, the veins coming out of the skin and the eyes exploding and all that is just wild. There's no way that you can dare impugn the thing. No, I, <laughs> I love the thing. That's the thing one of my, my favorite two. Film. It's The film. Shining and The Thing are my top two favorite horror films of all time. Yeah, it's it's such an effects heavy film that it's hard to compare the two. There's like obviously the effects of this are very good, um, but the thing has so many that it becomes so impressive that they were able to build that many practical effects for one movie. But you know, I'm sitting here thinking about the film and all the crazy different scenes in the movie, and I just remembered, for example, the the scene in which Cameron Vale, the main character, becomes a living modem where he taps into the computer system of the large corporation and brings it to life. Like before the internet was the internet, like scenes like that just blow me away. Watching in 2021. Yeah. There's some cool ideas in this for sure. And I think, but they're not fully formed ideas. Uh, I don't want to, I'm, this is not designed as like trashing the screenplay or anything like this because he was creating this under unique circumstances as far as movie making goes. Um, but you can tell that, that a lot of these ideas weren't fully formed. And I think that's why, Maybe that is why they, they kept all that conspiracy stuff in the background. But you get the big exposition dump at the end. Um, and I think that also contributes to sort of this feeling of like, oh, okay, they felt like they had to wrap everything up in a, in a nice little bow. You never really had that layering on of, of discovery, like slowly peeling the onion kind of thing. It just seems like the main character is going from one place to the next place to the next place, but he's not really learning anything until at the end, he learns everything. So that's one of my least favorite movie tropes is when they dump it all like that at the end. It's one of the like it, it can kill an entire movie like Silent Hill, whether you think that's a good movie or not. It has a scene where there's like five minutes straight of explanation. And you're like, that should have been spread throughout the movie. Yeah, I hate when they do that in a movie. Speaking of video games, doesn't Michael Ironside play the voice of Splinter Cell? Yeah. Sam Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes total sense. Uh, if you want a badass, get Michael Ironside's voice. But you know what, Patrick? The thing about Scanners is I'm not sure if it's an essential film in the director's canon, but it's an important film for him. Because A, it was a box office success, so therefore it opened up a lot of doors. People were willing to give him more money to make more movies. Also, the movie deals with themes and ideas that we see in future films i mean the movie itself was inspired by a chapter in the naked lunch called senders and about 10 years later of course he adapted the naked lunch uh we we mentioned the birth control and the conspiracy theories and the pharmaceutical companies and we look at movies like the brood which i know he made prior but still and we look at what he made next like the fly and dead zone and all it like it's like it's like all of his ideas were floating around in the movie scanners even if they're buried really deep and <laughs> you have to kind of like dig through it to kind of like see it but there's a lot of uh his reoccurring themes and the the, the director's like trademarks that that we do see in this film also i don't know how you guys feel about this and actually you know what maybe i should reserve this for after the break but i do think that of all of Cronenberg's endings, this might have the most optimistic ending. That's true. I'd yeah. say generally you don't have a whole lot of optimism in his movies. Yeah, it's more or less the good guy won, but at what price sort of thing? If you look at a movie like Dead Ringers, which I also love, one of my favorite Cronenberg films, 
for anyone who hasn't watched Dead Ringers, I don't want to ruin it or spoil it, but the ending is sort of like similar to the ending of Scanners, except in Scanners, I feel that at least one of the two siblings walks away better, like mm-hmm. in a better position, if that makes any sense. Like, I'm going to try not to spoil it for anyone here. It's just a more optimistic ending, but it does mirror the pessimistic finish of Dead Ringers because it allows one of the siblings to survive Albeit, you know, he has to kill his brother by swapping bodies and destroying his previous body, but whatever. (laughs) Okay, before we go to break, we need to discuss this ending. Because what exactly happened there? What the hell happened there? My interpretation is that they're they're having, like, what again, like what I call a scan-off, where they're just using their powers to max out against each other. And then um, once... I got that far in it. (laughs) Once Vale realizes that he can't win against his brother, he instead takes control of his body. And how does he do that? How does the brother... Run? I don't know. See, because, like, they, they don't... they don't. It's sort of like um going Super Saiyan or something. Like, it's like a thing that just happens, and you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was a, that was a thing that scanners could do. But okay. I mean, they had, they had controlled the bodies of the lesser, you know, of the non-scanners throughout the movie, but how did he get inside his brother's head? And then his own body starts on fire... <laughs> well, 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 don't forget that throughout the film, like, there is a sequence, like I said, where he turns into, like, a human modem and taps into the computer system. Yes, and he's clearly very powerful. For sure, and there's the scene in which Michael Ironside's character causes the man's head to explode, and so on and so forth. So, we're not entirely sure what the limit is of their powers, but you have to remember that this movie is not just a movie, it's a move. it's the start of a franchise. There are, like, five more five or six more movies like the franchise lasted 20 years (laughs) like there's like five sequels so i don't necessarily know how to explain what happened at the end of the film but the idea is that michael ironside's character was winning and he managed to sneak attack him by going into his body so therefore they reversed it's sort of like they body switched because yes. his body was already falling apart. So in order for him to survive, he had to perform the switch, take over his body. But at that point, because he got switched into, um, what's his face's body? Um, Cameron, Cameron Vale's body. His body was therefore too weak for him to switch back. Yeah, it was burned to a crisp. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, again, this is this feels like rush screenplay stuff because you'd want to set this up so that the audience actually understands the execution in the end. You'd at least want to hint at the possibilities. Well, yeah. You'd on. What you'd want to do is what they kind of like, kind of like what they did in Dragon Ball Z is they talk about there was once a Saiyan who was so strong he went Super Saiyan, but then he <laughs> died and da 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 da. It's like so now you have the background set up yes. that this this happened one time before. And then that would be tragic results. So it would be. And then at least you know it's possible. Yeah, but at least you know it's possible in this world, in this story, for something like this to happen. And then you also know that it's incredibly impressive when somebody pulls it off because the Mm -hmm. last person to try this died. And when when the hero lives and can do it, you're like, wow, he really is powerful. And so, yeah, it needs something. It needed something like that because as soon as. He wakes up. I'm like, wait, what just happened? They switched bodies? I didn't even know that was really possible. I mean, I knew they could mind control people, but I didn't know that they were actually in there. Like, that they could get into somebody's brain like that, I guess. I'm telling you, Patrick, like, David Cronenberg basically sat down, wrote 
scenes for this movie every morning, every night. He's writing it as they're filming it. And as he's writing the film, he comes up with ideas for 10 more movies. Like the, the fusion of man and machine is basically the theme that becomes central to Videodrome and The Fly. If you look at Dead Ringers, like having the two siblings in this film, like it feels like he was inspired by Scanners to therefore go and write and make his future films. Like it's like Scanners is the reason why Dead Ringers exists. Scanners is the reason why Videodrome exists. Scanners is the reason why The Fly exists and so on and so forth. It's also the reason why Scanners 2 exists and Scanners 3 and Scanners Cop <laughs> and Scanners Cop 2, which I haven't seen all of the Scanners films, but I can tell you that they're not very good. Uh, David Cronenberg has absolutely nothing to do with the sequels. Yeah, I I literally had no idea about the sequels until today when I opened up the Wikipedia page to sort of just refresh myself on the movie, and I was like, Scanners two, Scanners three, what are the like? I had never, and I'm I used to live at the video store, so I don't know how I missed these movies. Oh, I've you, seen Scanners two and three. I've never seen Scanners Cop and Scanners Cop two. I'm not sure what that's about, but I, I'm like a huge fan of Michael Ironside. I've actually met the dude because my friend Melissa was in a movie called Laserhawk. So she starred in this film, and Michael Ironside was also in Laserhawk, so everyone kind of knew who Michael Ironside was. What I did not know, and I should have known because he's done, I think he's composed the soundtrack for all of David Cronenberg's films, except for maybe one or two, but Howard Shore did the score for this movie, which makes sense because he is Canadian. Uh, Howard Shore, of course, is like well-known. He's won a bunch of Oscars. I think he won four Academy Awards. Uh, he did the uh, score, for example, for Lord of the Rings and a bunch of Scorsese films. Yeah, he 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 did the the score for uh, for this movie, which I did not realize until earlier today. Yeah, it was nice seeing his name pop up. He's definitely been around, been done a lot of great movies, uh, a lot of great scores. Before we move on, I just want to quickly say this really blew me away. Like the statistics here. So the movie grossed almost three million in opening weekend, which is a lot of money in 1981, especially for a Canadian movie. But it grossed 14 million in total at the box office in North America, which again is amazing because you made this movie with free money given to you by the government. Yeah. So it's a straight profit. <laughs> $14 million was a solid, that was a solid movie because movies back then probably only cost one or $2 million. Uh, you know, there were obviously some bigger budget movies. The Star Wars movies were costing upwards of ten or so, but um, but most movies were not costing that much. So, fourteen million dollars was a solid, solid return, and it would be easy to see why people, especially with something so low budget, why Hollywood come a calling to David Cronenberg. All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do our five questions. But before that, here's another clip from Scanners. I was told you were coming to pay me a visit, Mr. Bale. How did you know that? Well, I have friends. I don't want them, but I have them. Scanner friends? What do you mean by that? I'm one of you. You're one of me. 
Yes. You know what I think? I think you better tell me what you really want. It's the voices in my head. They're driving me crazy. How do you stop them? Your voices. That was another clip from Scanners. Uh, we have reached the point of the podcast where we do our five questions. So, of course, we always like to start things off positive because this is a positive show, guys. Uh, all right, Mike, we're going to start with you. What is your favorite scene from Scanners? I think the, probably my favorite is the ending scene. The scan off is just it's just wild because you've never seen the full depth of what these guys can do. So when you just see them just go fucking bananas on each other at the end it's it's wild and i love it it's just because you're like whoa look at the veins are exploding out of his arm what's gonna happen next and then yeah uh veil lights on fire the eye explosion is like really gross mm-hmm. it's that's oh, yeah, my no, that was nasty <laughs> yeah just when you just like close up on the eyes and they go blow out of his head that's disgusting and it looks so real it's that that ending rules like the obviously the head explosion scene is iconic and i love that but that's more just like a slow build up suspense and then blam and that's great but the ending is just bananas and i love it well and okay so that scene starts off with the you know the two brothers finally meeting and it being revealed that they are in fact brothers so hero and villain are brothers which is you know not exactly original but it it always seems to work yeah, and I I liked the building of that the tension in that as the one brother he so, Reebok kind of sorta tries to to bring over Cameron to his side, but I think he, <laughs> it, it it gave me like shades of Dexter the ending of the first season of Dexter where his serial killer brother is trying to like team up with him. Plus the classic, it's one of the funniest cliches in movies. The you know you and I we're not so different. You and I yeah, we could rule the <laughs> galaxy together. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Patrick, that is my pick also. The reason why is because like you said, we we get the explanation of the backstory of these two characters. There is sort of like a plot twist and a huge reveal. And then we get this incredibly gruesome, gory scene in which both men start to like basically melt as Mike says they perform a scan off. But we've seen this in in many movies where Someone has some sort of like mind control over a character. And so what you have is you have an actor and the actor basically just like twitches and and it's all about the facial expressions. And usually nine out of ten times it looks like really silly. You see it in a lot of like older films, especially be- before they can actually do practical effects. Here, Cronenberg doesn't just have the actors do like these like twitches and and over-exaggerate their facial expressions, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. He actually has Dick Smith utilize these incredible practical effects where their bodies start to fall apart at one point like they start to melt they light up on fire but also the actors are able to sell their performances so it never comes across as cheesy so like 
Mike, like you, when I was younger and I saw Scanners for the first time, I also did laugh at the scene in which the head explodes. But that's because it it comes out of nowhere. Like it's it is it's shocking, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this scene, there is like a slow build. And so that, for me, is the best scene in the film. So the head exploding might be the most iconic and most famous scene, but it's the ending that I consider the absolute best scene. And I actually like it better than the ending of The Fury. Did you guys read the Wikipedia to see how they actually did that um, head explosion? It was a shotgun. Very cool. I would imagine that the you know the like the swelling of the skin of these guys. There's balloons under there, and there's somebody with a, an actual hand pump probably that's standing behind them or uh, uh, squatting behind them out of frame, pumping up their face. Like I don't know. There's all sorts of ways to do that. It's a very cool scene though. There's no question it's because it's a it's a fully formed scene. It's one of the I don't want to say one of the few, but there it might actually be one of the few fully formed scenes in this movie, because the movie is a little herky jerky just because of the way they had to write it. And again, this is something that's totally forgivable and the movie's entertaining regardless. But um, this is a fully formed scene with a beginning, a middle and an end. And it, it works. But they even give Michael Ironside these contact lenses. So his whole entire pupil, like his eye completely turns white. And at one point the the actors are on fire so like yes they do yeah, cut, oh yeah. yeah they do cut to a body double like i guess a dummy who's lit up on fire but at one point the actors are on fire yeah yep there's no question like you're seeing them there and they were their hands are at least are on fire they, they submitted to that so good on them for doing that that shows some commitment and like i said like i do think that that at the end because he does do the body swap which again is a big huge shock that's sort of like a twist ending it is also an optimistic sort of like positive ending compared to most of Cronenberg films because the hero in this case, Cameron Vale, does survive and he does kill the bad guy. And he thwarts the, the evil plan and everything. So, yeah, all the bad guys have been killed by the end of this and most most of everything has been blowed up good. Um, <laughs> so my my favorite scene is actually the very first one. It's not the head, the head blowing up scene. I love the mall scene. To me, that's another beginning, middle, and an end. I love the way that's set up. Just so casually, you've got this guy who looks like he's homeless, walking in, sort of stealing food here and there. Um, not stealing food, but eating somebody's leftovers. And sort of the interaction with the two women and how the tension kind of builds. And you're like, wait, there's something weird is going on here. He never struck me as the villain because he seems to be in pain while, while it's happening. And it seems like he doesn't want it to be happening. And having those two cops and then resulting the resulting chase the, as they realize that this woman goes into a seizure and this guy could be causing it and they chase after him. I love the escalator chase. I think the Cronenberg comes up with some amazing visuals and that mall looks fantastic. Like, is that is that how that mall really looked is what I would like to know. Because like, that was a fantastic looking mall with lots of color everywhere and I don't know, just just a very very cool location to film in, and having those crisscrossing escalators for him to jump from, great stunt work, uh, jumping from one to the next and grabbing onto it and riding it up, and then kind of the way that it ends since he's been tranquilized, darted, just sort of he gets carried off. But I loved it from beginning to to end, how it slowly builds, becomes a frantic chase, and then has a nice little ending to it. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a great way to open up a movie. I think the entire movie sort of plays out like a cat and mouse chase, except the opening scene really is a foot chase. I think yeah. we, we should highlight the, the head. I mean, we've talked about the head explosion scene a lot, but I think we should highlight the fact that I, I might, if I'm remembering this correctly, we don't know Michael Ironside is a scanner when he volunteers yet, right? No. So that that's what makes that scene rule so much is he he the way he's just the guy who volunteers yeah I'll do the experiment and then it's like the the sort of dread that takes over the the guy who's supposed to be doing the demonstration as he realizes what's happening like that's that is a great scene all the way through like it isn't just the explosion it's a great scene from start to finish yeah that's and that ends up being the next scene in the movie which is it is a great way to start that or to uh, it, to escalate what you just sort of saw mm-hmm. um I, I think it's it's those the one two punch of those had me completely sucked in, and that's where like I say after that it kind of maybe peaked for me too soon and started to gently go down. It did have other other smaller peaks um, along the way, and the ending is very good. Like that's obviously a larger peak, but I, I don't think anything quite eclipsed the opening few few uh, scenes for me. I do like the fact that before they start the. You know when the head explodes before they start their little experiment, they say no one can leave the room. <laughs> like, oh. oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would, and why was that? I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll disrupt their concentration or something. I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to see this head explode. Um, <laughs> all right. So with with all that being said, uh, Mike, if there's one thing you could change about scanners, what would it be? Uh, I would get rid of uh, the the what is it, Stephen Lack? I would I would yeah swap swap him for someone who's not quite so uh, lacking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder how many times that j- jokes have made over the forty years since this release. Oh, probably a ton. I'll bet a lot right when it came out. Uh, he is yeah. the the biggest glaring issue, of course, because he takes you out of some moments. His wooden acting, whether or not that was a deliberate choice, maybe it's not his fault don't know i haven't i haven't seen any interviews on that but what it whether it was bad acting or deliberate choice it takes you out of uh certain scenes which are supposed to i think are supposed to have a little more gravity than he lends them yeah it's not super surprising to look at his filmography and see that it's like eight movies yeah clearly obviously that wasn't really his bag um rick what about you what would you change Stephen lack like like i want (laughs) to I want to I want to say something else just to make the podcast a bit more interesting, but I I have to choose Stephen Lack. Like it is sort of like charming to some degree. I don't know if the word char- I don't know if I'm using the right word here, charming, but there is something about his performance that it sort of works in the movie Scanners. But I can't help but not feel that if they actually had a really good actor, this movie could be ten times better because he is the main actor, right? And mm-hmm. and the problem is. For a movie that deals with like big, huge, complex themes and a huge, complex plot and conspiracy theories and a pharmaceutical company that's that's experimenting on like people and you know, et cetera, et cetera, I don't ever feel like this dude is afraid. So I don't ever feel the suspense because of his performance, and I don't feel the chemistry between him and um, Kim O'Neill, Kim Oberst. I mean Jennifer O'Neill, Jennifer yeah, yeah, O'Neill, Jennifer O'Neill's Kim. So. I would have to say Stephen Lack. Like I, I, he's just bad. He's he's just 
I mean, he's like Mark Wahlberg in the happening bat. <laughs> I was going to say um, Hayden Christensen in Star Wars bad. That's another good one, too. Very robotic. Yeah. And in which case, I, I would, that was most likely Lucas's fault. This one, I don't yeah. think it's Cronenberg's fault because every other actor seems to be doing a fine job. A great job. Everyone does a great job in this movie, except for Stephen Lack. Like, we haven't even mentioned um, Patrick uh, McGugan. McGugan, yeah. He plays uh, the doctor. I think people would recognize him. I recognized him most for, as being the the king in Braveheart, but uh, that guy's been around forever. He's he's done a lot of stuff. Very very sinister in his own way, but in a kind of a, a he's like the nice sinister guy. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, he's obviously that's the that's the obvious choice. So now I, I was racking my brain just now because he was of course my choice as well. But I did come up with one other thing. There's one other scene that I would take. Just one scene. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of writing choices or a lot of writing things that I would love to be able to tweak. But I, ha- I was trying to choose something that I knew because of the way they had to shoot this movie, the way he was writing it as 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 he made it. I think it's unfair to criticize the writing a whole lot. However, just one scene I think he probably could have beefed up a little bit, and that is the scanner's circle scene where Cameron walks in on the crew. This is where he first meets Kim. Or, I mean, I guess he sort of met her at the art show, art gallery, but it's where he first tracks her down. And he walks in on that circle, and they're kind of all doing a mind meld with each other. All right, I thought that that, that what they showed there was kind of a waste of time. I like the idea of the circle, and that would have been the perfect opportunity to set up the getting inside somebody else's, like the switching body thing, I think could have been set up there. Like, this is what, it could have explained more of what scanners can do. And it would have been like this group of rogue scanners who, you know, which is what they were. I guess they were outside of either organization. And this is what we can do when we kind of work together. This is what one person can have the power of. And this is, you know, a positive kind of place for scanners. I thought that that scene could have been better utilized there. And instead it was just went into kind of a meditation thing that I don't think effectively utilized what what elements it had to create scanners lore i would have rewritten that scene to set up the last scene i guess is the short way of saying that (laughs) that's fair i kind of feel like this movie is a precursor to the x-men i mean although the x-men comic was written before the movie existed but i mean the x-men movie yeah yeah i i definitely picked up those vibes as well like there are these people that are outside the norms of society. They're being kind of looked down upon. They're, they're kind of hunted in some ways and they have special powers. And then there's one of them who's clearly Reebok is Magneto. Like we are the future and we can take over everywhere. Um, Dr. Ruth is basically Professor X. Michael Ironside's character is basically Magneto. Stephen Lack is basically Cyclops because he's just as boring <laughs> and all about his eyes. <laughs> the only thing we're missing is like someone to replace Halle Berry. Well, you need a Wolverine in there to shake things up. Yeah, I think they wanted Stephen Lack to be Wolverine, but he ends up being Cyclops. <laughs> and you can't have a movie starring Cyclops. Well, you know what? Like, that's what's actually interesting is I read I, I was I was obviously perusing the Wikipedia page today, as I mentioned. Um, I think this this really is a movie like I'm 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 against the modern remake phenomenon as much as anyone, but I love a good remake or a remake that goes somewhere different, like the Suspiria remake um, from 2018. I thought that was a great one. But Scanners is a good idea, and I think with modern technology, as long as you didn't go too heavy on the CGI, you could actually make a really good modern movie out of this, a really great modern horror film, like with a good budget. 
Yeah, it would have to be somebody that sort of understands what made Scanners good in the first place and then try to beef up those elements to create a better movie around it. Instead of, you know, like the person who remade RoboCop, who clearly didn't understand why people liked RoboCop. Oh my god, if that dude remade this movie, the entire film would just be heads blowing up. After you're seeing someone's head blowing <laughs> up. Only they'd be CGI heads blowing up. Um, that's actually a nice segue into our third question is, Mike, who do you think is the MVP of Scanners? Well, I, I hadn't heard of these guys until I looked at the Wikipedia page again, but I have to um, give props to, it's a split between Dick Smith, who is the makeup artist here, and Gary Zeller, who is the special effects supervisor. So I can't quite choose between the two of them. I would probably ebb over to Dick Smith because he's, it, like, there's a lot he's doing in that final scene, but yeah, it's 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 tough. It's between those two guys. Like, Cronenberg's great. I love Cronenberg's direction, but I feel like without the effects, this movie doesn't work at all. That is a compelling argument. I'm trying to imagine if it didn't have those big effects moments, how well would this movie work? And and Cronenberg's direction is very good in certain scenes. It's just that I think ultimately the story is what could possibly fall apart without the effects. Interesting. I'm gonna have to think about that one, Rick. What about you? What is who do you think? Is the MVP. Before I answer the question, have you read Roger Ebert's review of this movie? I have, yes. And I okay. actually watched his review of this. One of the reasons that I wanted to pick this movie is because I've been watching a lot of old Siskel and Ebert reviews. And and they came, I ran across Scanners, and I was like, oh, yeah, Scanners. I forgot about that movie. And as I was looking up anniversaries that were happening this year, I saw Scanners, and I was like, that is it. This is it. Now's the time to do this movie. But, yes, yeah, so I, I watched the review, and I read his review. His review is really good it's really well written and he's lukewarm on the film he likes it but what he does not like about the movies he argues that the movie is really centered around the plot instead of the actual characters and that's sort of like my problem with Stephen lack like i feel like i don't care about him and that is the problem because he is the, the hero the protagonist so anyhow i mentioned this because we're talking about MVPs, and I feel like I should choose Cronenberg because he's the director of the movie. He wrote it, he produced it, and we already talked about how he had to write the movie while making the movie. But at the same time, it's hard to argue that Scanners is known because of the special effects. It's not known because of Cronenberg's direction. It's not known because of a great screenplay. It's sure as hell not known because of a great acting on the part of Stephen Lack. It's really the special effects that everyone remembers. So I'm going to have to go with the special effects team, and I'm not entirely sure, like you, Mike, who to really give the award to. So I'm just going to say everyone who's involved in the special effects. I know Dick Smith was involved in, say, for example, The Exorcist. He helped make those effects in The Exorcist. So when I look at the resumes of both men, Dick Smith is the dude that has like the most impressive resume. So I'm going to assume most of the greatness in the special effects is because of his work but yeah i mean you look at the head exploding scene you look at the final climax and um god like i mean i know it's only two scenes and i feel like it's unfair to give him the mvp for just two scenes but they are also the two most impressive scenes in the movie in the movie yeah, and it's like, even though neither one of those scenes would be my favorite scene in the movie, I, the, my favorite scene in the movie is all Cronenberg. Like, that one I can attribute all to him. But the, you're right, the, the most memorable scenes out, obviously the most the thing that this movie will be remembered for most are those practical effects. And so... Oh, wow. You Sorry, he did, he did Taxi Driver as well. 
Yeah, he, yeah, he's he's got he's an incredible wow. resume. Yeah, that's it is a great resume. Wow. Also, you know, um, you know, like so they they filmed this movie in Montreal, and so you know the scene in which the head explodes, right? It's it's filmed in Concordia University, and it's actually filmed where they now hold a Fantasia Film Festival. Oh, is that right? That's that's a nice little bit of trivia. I wonder if most people who are attending know that. No. Interesting thing. But <laughs> yeah. <I> do not. <laughs> I guess I was expecting too much. Um, yeah, so I think that's going to be three votes for the, the special effects guys. Uh, even though Cronenberg obviously shows a lot of technical skill and craft in making this movie, I think uh, that they have to be the MVP because they did such an outstanding job, just uh, above and beyond. Fun story. So one of the reasons why I know about this movie is because somehow Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's dad, was involved in the making of this film. I'm not sure if he gave money. I'm not sure what the story is, but my dad used to work for the Mount Royal Club, which is like this very famous prestige or sort of like men's club, like a private club here in Montreal where only rich people can go. It's like it costs like $50,000 a year for a membership. But anyways, so because Pierre Trudeau used to be a member of the club, he used to hire my dad as his private bartender when he had parties at his house so my dad knows a trudeau family and somehow pierre trudeau was involved in the making of this movie well mm. he definitely passed the law that allowed for the the, the tax money to a dollar soon instead of going to movies so if yeah that was all that's what i read oh, I, is I, I that it? involved in any other one yeah. yeah that's on the wikipedia again that's on there it says that he wrote he was the guy who passed the law that allowed the, the movies to receive 100 percent funding in canada during that time period. Oh, so it's not like he invested in the film. No, he just that, made it possible for them to get free financing, essentially. Okay, okay. I, I honest to God did not read a Wikipedia page. Like, my dad was telling me the story. That's, that's weird. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very possible he was one of the investors. I don't know. That's that's not anything that I ran across. Um, all right, so we know who the MVP is, but... Does Scanners Pass the Howard Hawks Test? A great movie, supposedly, is comprised of three great scenes and no bad scenes. That's always the important one. No bad ones. Um, Mike, we'll start with you. Does Scanners Pass the Howard Hawks Test? No. <laughs> All right. I feel it. like it's got it's got maybe, maybe there, I think there's two great scenes. I can't think, there's some other good scenes. Oh, interesting, okay, all right. I don't think, I don't know if there's another great scene in the movie that people would be like, wow, that was great. Like, for me, great is a high bar. See, I, okay, so I would put the first, well, we'll get to me later, I guess. But all right, so you say there's only two, two maybe great scenes. Are there any bad scenes in this movie? Um, there's some real, there's a lot of mediocre scenes. I don't know if they're outright bad. But there's a lot of very mediocre scenes. Sure. And I, I would argue that mediocre scenes are, are allowable. It's only bad yeah. scenes we're looking for. Ones where you're like, no, that, that was bad. Well, uh, if you count them all, Chase, then maybe it, it could barely squeak past that test. But I, would, I wouldn't I would say there's three great scenes in this movie. Like I said, there's, the, there's two really impressive scenes that will stick with everybody who's even seen the movie once. And I there's nothing, there's no other scene in the movie that makes me go, wow. The pickings are slim when it comes to great scenes, but we'll get to see. Rick, what about you? Okay. When it comes to great scenes or scenes that might be great, almost great, so there's a head exploding scene, there's the opening scene, there's the car chase. Yeah, there's a car chase. There's the scene in which they have to avoid the four hitmen and it turns into like a foot chase. And that's where I kind of get the Terminator feel and vibe. 
there's the scene that involves Robert Silverman's character, the sculptor Benjamin Pierce. I, for whatever reason, I love that scene. Like, I think it's he's very he actually, kooky in it. Yeah, I think it's because he actually lives in a giant house which is sculpted of his head. Like it's it's yeah. weird. Um, it's only something that you would see in a Cronenberg film. I also really like the twist at the end when we realize that she's being scanned by the baby, like the fetus and not the actual lady. And I do like the last scene and the twist that comes to the last scene. So there's a lot of really good scenes in this movie. Now, are we going to call all of these like seven scenes I mentioned great? Maybe not, but there's at least two, if not three. The problem is, is there a bad scene? So my question is, can I just pretend that Stephen Lack doesn't exist in this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I think for the purposes of a bad scene, uh, pretend that Stephen Lack does not exist. Okay, no. So here's the thing. I don't even know if it's a bad scene because I'm really, my mind is trying to scan this movie from start to finish right now to figure out. Scan, he said. Yeah. Um, But here's (laughs) the thing. So. The, 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 it's not even, I don't, maybe it is a bad scene. It feels rushed or incomplete. So when they do go to the doctor's office, right? I like the reveal of the baby fetus scanning Kim. Like, so that's yes. a cool scene. But the problem is Stephen Lack's stupid character, Cameron Vale, goes to see the doctor. And it's such a strange scene where he walks in. The doctor's like, what are you doing here? Get out. And he's like, I need to talk to you. And he's like, what for? And he's like, these pills. And then he, he tells his patient, he's like, read the newspaper, I'll be back. And then it just yeah. cuts. And I'm like, yeah. what? Like, like, isn't this supposed to be like a big reveal? Isn't it supposed to explain something about the plot of the movie? Who is the doctor? And we never see the doctor again. And then Cameron Vale walks out and he's like, what's going on? And she's like, I got scanned. And like him with his dead eyes and his wooden performance, he's like, by who? <laughs> I was like, what is wrong with this scene? I think it is a bad scene because the way it's executed, his performance doesn't help. No. And again, that is, you're right. One of those scenes is like, what's the purpose of this scene? What were you getting out of him going into the doctor's office saying, you know, I, I need to, you to answer some questions about these pills. That's something that could have been done easier before. I would point to that circle scene as something I think is bad and completely a waste of time. I don't think it establishes it's, it established it, it had so much promise and it does nothing with all of its, you know, elements. So I don't even understand like what exactly happened. Like they sit down, looks like they are meditating. They walk in, they start shooting everyone. So are they so far deep in scanning and meditating that they can't wake up before they are shot? But what was even the purpose of having those people? If you were going to have zero explanation as to what was going on and then have them all get shot. Well, that's where he meets Kim, right? So they needed yeah, a way yeah, for him to meet Kim, but the execution he of the scene. Could have met her anywhere at the art gallery. He could have yeah, met exactly. her at the art gallery, and yeah. they could have like it, it. Just was a complete waste of nothing. So I can't give it the Howard Hawk status. I would argue that it has three great scenes, though. I do like the head exploding scene, obviously. I do like the end, and I would argue that the beginning, the beginning is a scene that's going to stick with me for a while, just because I love basic filmmaking techniques and craftsmanship and i think it's so incredibly well crafted from beginning to finish to, to end of that scene that I, that's going to stick with me when i think about my own movie like writing my own stuff or doing whatever if i ever end up shooting something that's a movie that i'll remember that's now been filed away in my brain as an example of a great way to stage a little chase through a mall uh, because i think it's so well done 
You know the tagline for the movie, which is really long, it says there are 4 billion people on Earth, 237 are scammers. Did we actually get that statistic in the movie where they say there are 237 people who are scanners? No, I don't think so. I don't think they know how many scanners there are. The reason why I ask is, is because when he goes to the doctor's office, it implies that all of these women who are now pregnant are having babies that are scanners. So therefore, it seems like we're going to have a lot of scanners in the near future. Yeah, because that drug has been getting shipped out that Revok has uh, been manufacturing. He's been shipping it out to, to doctors everywhere. So they're making more scanners for sure. But how many there are already like they obviously stopped his plan but clearly a bunch more scanners were going to be created because of this and who knows how many of them were going to be messed up what i don't understand <laughs> is reading the taglines here they're all very good taglines like there's one that says 10 seconds the pain begins 15 seconds you can't breathe 20 seconds you explode why wasn't the tagline for the movie your head will explode like simple because that's all everyone talked about I think uh, they maybe they didn't know. You never know as a movie like what the what the most memorable thing is going to be. And I guess they probably are like, yeah, that head explosion is really cool. Did they know that the audience would respond to it the way that they wanted it to, and that that would end up being the thing? I don't know. You'd think that a marketing guy would have seized upon that immediately, but maybe back in 1981 they thought that that was a maybe too gross of a thing to seize upon. Well, but you know what's funny is when we have to decide the headline for our podcast, we we try to be clever because we want people to click, right? So my headline is scanners so good it will blow your mind, which I know <laughs> sounds stupid, but people are going to click on it. Right. Because it's obviously done tongue in cheek as well. Like we know that we're using a pun there. Um, yeah, I don't know if I was a marketer, that's what I would have focused on, but maybe they didn't, maybe want, they to didn't want to give it away. Maybe, but the talk of the town, from my understanding, when the movie was released is in the movie, someone's head explodes. And when you see it, you're not going to believe it. Right. All right. So we have talked a lot about the head exploding moment, which is a moment that everybody remembers, but we have added, we sort of swapped out one of our five questions and we were, we were, we're trying out a new line of questioning here with which to end it. And uh, this one is about like a moment that you'll remember that you'll take away from, from the movie that we haven't talked about yet. Just could be a small little thing, could be a, a bit of a performance, a line of dialogue, could be a, a moment in the movie, like something that happens in the film, but just a small little moment that will take away, which is obviously everybody's going to take away the head exploding. But Mike, what's something else that you always remember from Scanners? Well, like I said, the just the small, <clears throat> aside from the two iconic scenes that we've discussed ad nauseum, the, I just really love that conspiracy element, the, the fact that like there's, I love, I love true crime. I'm a, I've always been a big true crime head. So when, when movies reference sort of semi unknown things like the, like the, the pharmaceutical, uh, the, the birth control, that's always something that stuck with me in the movie. And I just love that little element. I love anything that references sort of obscure, um, true crime. So that's a very, uh, niche thing, but I love that. Okay. Uh, Rick, what about you? Did we talk about Stephen Lack's eyes? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that we haven't well, talked about? Yeah, like, I'll go first here. I'll tell you what I'll always remember. This is the one moment in the movie that made me laugh out loud and kind of surprised. And it's not the head exploding. That didn't make me laugh. I thought it was very cool, but it didn't make me laugh. Uh, I wasn't a kid, though. So I, I, like you guys, if I was 13 or 14, I probably would have been giggling on the floor. But um, 
it was this it was a similar kind of moment and it was when the telephone booth explodes <laughs> when he's hacking into the or he's scanning the computer system and then they cut it off and everything's blowing up at that place at at the the base or whatever it's called He's out there in this phone booth, and things are going horribly wrong, and sparks start happening. He and Kim run out of there, and the, the booth explodes like it was filled with gasoline. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. Like, a telephone booth, one of the least explodable things as far as, like, a fiery explosion. There's nothing in there that would cause a fiery explosion, but this thing blew up like it was, you know detonated like i say like it was just filled with kerosene or something it exploded in so many flames that it made me laugh because it was clearly just thrown in there to have another another thing blowed up it it was just to be an explosion i don't know why there was so much fire <laughs> but it was so funny it just made me laugh it's a little moment that well, that's what happens yeah. that's what happens when the canadian government's foot in the bill i guess <laughs> they're like let's let's make this thing go up in a, in a fiery ball of smoke a telephone booth yeah an odd one maybe that's just me that finds that funny but i laughed right out loud and i was like that's hilarious um okay rick we'll circle back to you is there one line one line of dialogue that stands out for well, you Well, no no we kind of mentioned how it reminds me of the x-men and there are specific scenes like there's a scene in which they break into i think it's the corporation or the factory or the head office of the corporation and there's two cops chasing them and so they both start scanning each cop and one of the cops sees her has his mom and starts crying and falls into like tears and the other guy starts flipping out because we don't really know what he sees but i just kind of felt like when watching this movie i just felt that all of these characters resembled someone from the x-men comic we could go so far as to say that this kind of feels like an origin story for a superhero movie because it's no different than the first original like x-men film in terms of like how they introduce these characters um the fact that they all have like these superpowers they are all like mutants the fact that there's more being born there's someone after them like it's just uh i mean i like there's so many marvel movies coming out these days that i don't see why they don't try to do something new because there's been films similar in the past where it could have been sort of like a superhero movie but they do things differently and it's just it's just far more interesting than watching like another x-men movie if that makes any sense so i guess the thing is normally the question would be who would you recommend this movie to and so clearly i would recommend this movie to people like david cronenberg but i would also recommend this movie to people who like superhero films like the x-men because there's a lot of similarities between the two Oh, yeah, no question. I would recommend this probably most to people who are really interested in Cronenberg, for sure. Um, outside of that, I think you've got to be interested in sort of filmmaking in general. Then this movie has a lot of interesting things to take away. Um, I'm not sure that I would recommend it too much to general audiences, because I don't necessarily think it's the best example of his work. Um, but if you are a fan of his, it is a absolute... I do think it is a must-see if you're a fan of Cronenberg's, just simply to, to see how he develops. All right. Well, that should pretty much wrap things up for us. Uh, Mike, where can we find you online? Well, you can, of course, find me on Goomba, Stomp, and Tilt. Um, I also write for Cultured Vultures, and you can find me on Twitter under Gameskeeper Mike. Actually, you can find me on almost any platform under that moniker because uh, I'm, I'm trying to brand myself under a trendy moniker. Gameskeeper. Uh, I have not been online a whole lot as of late <laughs> in any capacity other than this podcast, but uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully things getting back to a situation where I can be writing again. 
Um, but for now, uh, Rick, where can everybody find the podcast and where can they find you? You can just go to sortedcinema.com. You can find our archive of, well, not every episode, but from 500 and up. Um, I'm slowly uploading some of the older episodes to the YouTube channel and also the podcast feed. As for the podcast feed, I mean, you can listen to the podcast on the website, sortedcinema.com, goombastomp.com. You can listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, Listen Note, Amazon, Linktree, you name it, it's everywhere. But yeah, sortedcinema.com and the Twitter handle is sortedcinema. All right, to do it for today, we'll be back next week with a look at The Hunt. And there have been a lot of movies titled The Hunt, so it's going to be up to you to figure out which one. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. I must remind you that the scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. There's a doctor present, Dr. Gatineau. I know that you've all been prepared for this, but I thought I'd just remind you just the same. Uh, there is one other thing. No one is to leave this room once the demonstration has begun. At this point, I'd like to call for volunteers. Hey, you're listening to Sorted Cinema, one of the official podcasts over at soundonsite.org. My name is Simon Howell. I'm the content editor of Sound On Sight. I'm joined by Mr. Ricky D, the editor-in-chief. <laughs> Hello, guys. I would like to actually think that we are the, the official podcast of soundinsight.org, because even though the other podcasts are way cooler and way better than us, uh, we are the first. Uh, well, no, but this is this is Sorted Cinema, right? Okay, well, we are the second. <laughs> okay, we're off to a rollicking start here. And uh, the editor of Nothing in Particular, as far as I know, Mr. Edgar Chaput, is also here. I only edit my own articles. And Ricky, just in case you're fearing that the other shows, the other Sound on Sight shows are cooler, I believe that's why you hired me. Uh, so this is, I believe, our sixth Cronenberg show. Only this time, Cronenberg show means something a little bit different. No, it just means that we're going to talk about one from Brandon Cronenberg and a movie from David Cronenberg. That's right. I believe, uh, hey, we've had enough preamble already. We should... Uh... To get things rolling, the first one we're going to discuss is actually the David Cronenberg film. It's from 1981. It's called Scanners. You're 35 years old, Mr. Vale. Why are you such a derelict, such a piece of human junk? The answer's simple. You're a scanner, which you don't realize that has been the source of all your agony. But I will show you now that it can be a source of great power. That was a clip from Scanners, a 1981, I guess, horror sci-fi thriller written and directed by David Cronenberg. It involves a secret group of telepathic warriors, I guess you could say, and a opposing group of evil telepathic warriors they're all known as scanners, and one of them is Michael Ironside, and that's how you know he's the bad guy. <laughs> that's about the entire plot of Scanners, actually. Uh, now, Rick, for me, Scanners was always the early Cronenberg movie that eluded me. I'm, I think it's, now that I've seen Scanners, I've seen all the early Cronenberg, let's say pre-Dead Zone, which I still have not seen. So... I don't know. Do you feel like I was I was I missed out on a hidden gem, or is it kind of a kind of a hit or miss affair? 
I actually love this movie. Like, I love this movie. Um, the tagline reads, there are 4 billion people on Earth. 237 of them are scanners. They have the most terrifying powers ever created, and they are winning. And that's what this movie is basically about. It's like, at one point, I believe in like the 70s or whatnot, there was like an experimental tranquilizer that was tested on pregnant women. Actually, it was during the 1940s. And it produced like, it produced some severe long range side effects. So before the drug was taken off the market, 236 babies were born to these women tested with the drug. And they were found to possess the ability to read minds. And they had sort of like um, telekinesis yeah. powers. Sure, let's go with that. Right, so they were dubbed scanners. Well, actually, telekinesis is the ability to move objects with your brain, and tele- tele- uh, uh, yes. telepathy is supposed to be the ability to, to communicate with other people in your mind, so this is sort of something in between. Right, well, uh, these... Is it? I, I don't know. I, yeah, I... because if you can explode someone's brain, that's a little bit different than reading their <laughs> thoughts. Yeah, nobody's moving objects. They're They're... Yeah, no. I think exploding someone's brain counts as moving an object. The point I'm trying to make here, this is basically part conspiracy thriller. It's a touch political. It's a sci-fi horror film. I think as a conspiracy thriller, it works. And it works extremely well. Uh, David Cronenberg, he gets in some carefully aimed shots at government, espionage, industrial corporation, like, there are political insights thrown throughout the whole entire film amidst the gore, amidst the action. And there's, like, this, these mysterious figures that are calling the shots, these puppet masters, if you will, these unseen protagonists. And they're manipulating all the events from behind the scenes. And I think it works extremely well as a conspiracy thriller. I don't think it works very well as a sci-fi film. I do think it works somewhat as a horror film, and I think it also works extremely well as an action movie. Unfortunately, I don't think this works as a movie. I was combing through the Wikipedia page, and I noticed that there was an attempt at a remake. I know there was also two sequels, which I'm sure are even worse. But um, I noticed that at some point in the recent past, uh, I think it was Dimension Films, were working on developing a TV series. and. I don't know. Scanners to me kind of feels like a long TV movie pilot thing <laughs> that just never like near the end, you start to get the hands of something interesting, but it just takes forever to get there. And I, hmm. and I, I never thought I would, I would be so vitriolic against a Cronenberg film, but I swear to God, half of this fucking movie, we spend looking at actors shaking like they're convulsing in a really unconvincing way. while we listen to the same goddamn sound effect and that's mm. not the only reason it's boring as hell. Okay, well, the last time I looked up something on Wikipedia, it was the subject matter of Simon Howell, and it said that Simon Howell is usually wrong, as is the case today, Simon, because you were wrong. Um, I think the problem is that this is Cronenberg's most accessible film. I mean, to the point where they made uh, four sequels, Scanners 2, The New Order, Scanners 3, The Takeover, Scanner Cop, my personal favorite. What? <laughs> it's... And, cool. and wait, and wait, Scanner Cop 2, Vulcan's Revenge. But um, I think, look, it is clearly Cronenberg aiming for a mainstream movie to try to make some money at the box office for once. 
But I still think that the major themes that we see throughout all of Cronenberg's films is present in this movie. The ongoing ba uh, battle of mind over body, body versus mind, corrupt corporations, society's rejection of the unusual and simply different. It's all present in Scanners. It's, it's just, just in a more boring form than ever. Oh, hold on now. Uh, I, I, I imagine that this will be the occasion where I am the one who is uh, somewhat torn and certainly uh, between the two of you in the sense that Ricky loves it. You obviously don't like it. I think it's fine. Uh, I have a small admission. I had seen scenes before. Uh, I knew who was in it. Uh, I knew what it was about. But this morning was the first time where I hit play and watched it for the first time in one session. Um, it's. I think it's. It's fine. I. I just find it curious, uh, Ricky. Uh, a few moments ago, during your, <laughs> your little diatribe there, uh, you did refer to it as as an okay horror film. I, I'm not sure this is uh, much of a horror film at all. I, I felt this was very much the adventure film, the action film. And you also mentioned it as as an action film. Granted, but I think it works much better like that. I don't think this. Not only is the film not scary, I was not under the impression that it's trying to be scary either. Um, and even though, uh, you know, government, I'm not sure what it's trying to say about governments, maybe the corporations, that, that would make a little bit more sense. Is it saying anything? This movie has nothing sure. to say about corporations or government except that they're <sighs> bad and evil. Yeah, this movie well... has no insight. It's the only Cronenberg film I've seen. That has no thematic resonance with anything except. And I'm, one, and I'm wondering. Go ahead, please, Simon. Go it, ahead. Go ahead. It's, no, 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 no. It's, no, it's no, interesting no, in the Simon. first five minutes when you watch a head explode, and then that's the only interesting thing that happens. Okay. Hmm. Now, first of all, let's not twist my words. I, I refer to it as a sci-fi horror film, which I think that description fits aptly for the movie. And in terms of sci-fi horror, it's not very good in the sci-fi aspect of it in terms of how they explain the mythology of this like world universe story etc in terms of horror i said it it's okay it's it's it i think it succeeds somewhat in horror in terms of the special effects and gore at least no it's not a scary movie mm. but but look in terms of early david cronenberg movies this is the most technically proficient of his early movies it makes excellent use of its low budget despite the fact that it is the biggest budget he had at that point of his career. It's still somewhat of a low budget. The film boasts a few extraordinary set pieces, um, some in, in, like some, some great gory special effects. And I really do like the visual metaphors throughout the whole entire film. And I'm sorry, it's notorious for the scene in which Michael Ironside uses his awesome scanning power to literally awesome scanning power yes to literally explode the head of another man and you guys you guys cannot i don't care if you like or dislike this movie you got to admit that is a fantastic sequence good scene. yes good and scene. it's and it comes in the first five minutes and then the rest of the movie blows if i may if i may interject just for a moment uh, another uh, curious comment you just made is that this is one of the most uh, i don't know if you said call it the most technically proficient of uh, Cronenberg's early films would you say, in terms of visual effects and say set pieces and makeup effects and whatnot, would you what, what would you prefer? What would you consider better, Scanners, the film we're reviewing today, or Videodrome? Because to uh, me, you, that would there's be... no contest. Sorry, sorry, guys. What year did Videodrome come out? 
uh, a year or two later. A he year was or two 83. Later. This movie came out in 1981. So I'm saying up until that po- point of his career, because I, I love, look, I love Rabbit. I love Shivers. I love those movies. But if you compare them technically to what you see here in Scanners, Scanners is a superior film. It, not, it might not be as deep or complex or have the great story or script of this <laughs> or previous. Or be as good. Or be as good. Right? <laughs> yes. But, but, but I really do think it's technically proficient. Like, Basically, you know what this is? This is an effects showcase for Gary Zeller and Rick Baker and, and company, whoever else worked alongside those two great special effects men. Um, it involves great use of prosthetics and latex mechanisms. In, in two scenes and or I, three. Let's say, okay, the final scene is fantastic. The head explosion. Very good scene. Very the good head scene. exploding sequence is fantastic. I love the scene where Vale scan, scans the telephone network for Consex secrets. And like again, the cl- the climatic vein bursting psychic duel between Vale and Revok. This movie displays more confidence as a visual stylist for David Cronenberg than his previous two films. Hmm. I think that hmm. I think that without 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 scanners, he couldn't have evolved as a director in terms of the way producers look at him. Because if they were just looking at what he did prior, like Rabbit and Shivers, he might not be where he is today. But Scanners is a very important film for David Cronenberg because it opened a lot, a lot of doors for him. I mean, it was a box office success. Oh, I, an- I, I, I can't dispute that. A, he had a, he had more money than before, and so it looks better. And you know, it's, it's an, obviously it's an important film for him, but it's also his worst movie that I've seen. I, I okay. I, to be fair, when I said I've seen all his early films, I still haven't seen Fast Company. I don't know if I ever will. Oh, no, neither have I. But, okay, well. Fast Company, that there is a movie I dislike, and I really dislike Cosmopolis. I do not dislike Scanners. I actually like Scanners a lot because I feel like it's a product of its time. And like I said, the director is clearly, clearly has his eye in the box office. I and- just wish he had an eye on the actors. I, I, oh, wait, uh, to be to be fair, I actually do think um, I think Stephen Lack is fairly good. Uh... I think uh, Michael Ironside is fine. Wait, wait, sorry. You think Stephen Lack is fairly good? I think he's fine. He he's got that mm. he's got that X factor that most Cronenberg protagonists have, where they're a little bit off. Yes. And I think he suits the material. It's everyone else who sucks. Patrick McGowan, what the hell is he doing in this movie? Oh, I actually liked him quite a bit in this film. <laughs> I'm talking to Bizarro Simon. Like you come from Bizarro Planet, and where is the real Simon? Because most people, <laughs> the majority of people, no, everybody I know who dislike Scanners, they dislike it specifically because of the performance by Stephen Lack. And everybody loves Patrick McGowan, and you're completely vice versa. Oh, that's fine. It, it, it's not just McGowan, though. Most of the supporting acting is horrible. The, uh, the, the, the uh, I shouldn't call her, the lady, uh, Jennifer O'Neill, uh, not very good either on, in this film. And did anyone uh, else notice that she gets top billing for some reason? Yes, yeah, that's very strange, too. Uh, <laughs> Michael Ironside is... Yeah, actually, if I know I said overall I, I'm okay with the film earlier on, but if I could maybe, uh, not to hang up on you, Ricky, but if I could maybe touch on a couple of the negatives I thought. The first, I'm just going to mention two. The first one would be the, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the lack of Michael Ironside, who's there in a few scenes at the beginning, uh, who's very prominent in the final 20, 25 minutes. But there's this stretch of a good 45, 50, 55 minutes where... He sure just shows up every now and then, but he is such a uh, much more um, attractive actor, uh, certainly as so far as his intensity in the performance is concerned. He's a much more attractive actor than St- either Stephen Lack or the leading lady, uh, Jennifer O'Neill. 
anything is more attractive than Stephen Lack, especially when he's a lead of a movie. Mm. <laughs> okay. Right. But, but Michael Ironside rocks. And I love Michael Ironside in this movie. And one of the reasons why this movie has a huge cult following is because of his performance. Again, when the dude's head blows up, Michael Ironside is like the baddest badass. He looks like he's he looks like he's has he has a heart on or something like that. He's, he's doing he's like he's so excited. I don't know, man. When when the best thing you've got is like Michael Ironside's seventeenth most badass performance, you've got problems. Mm. Oh come on, this movie's this movie's a lot of fun. Just one more thing, I did want to mention the, the second thing because we we I think all three of us, whether for for the good or wrong reasons, all three of us touched on the film as an action film. Uh, and there are action scenes in the film. And I think now, is it because it's one of his earlier uh, works? Is it because he doesn't have as much money? Or is it just because David Cronenberg is maybe not that good at direct directing action? I thought on paper, probably as you read the script, uh, the car chases and the gun, the shotgun shootouts were good. And probably Cronenberg was like, hey, I need this in my movie. It's going to be a great idea. On film... I really didn't think they looked very good. I thought they were stale. I thought they were boring. I thought they moved at a very strange, strangely uh, bizarre, uh, slow pace. There was no thrill to any of those scenes, but there, and which is was disappointing because there's at least three or four genuine action scenes in this film. They are action scenes, but they kind of sucked. Uh, first of all, uh, he was gunning for a mainstream movie. He did want a box office success. Second of all, in terms of action, he had already directed a movie called Fast Company, which is all about fast cars and racing and car chases and whatnot. So he had already had experience in in directing action sequences. I don't think the action sequences are as bad as you guys are claiming it to be. By today's standards, yes. But looking back in 1981, okay, it's no like French connection. But there's two specific scenes in this movie uh, one, which reminds me a lot of some of the action sequences in the first Terminator film. And a, a second, mm. and the opening sequence of this movie, I could swear, I swear to God, it was, shop, it, it was shot in the same shopping mall as the original Total Recall. Like, the exact same location. <laughs> you know when, when chasing them up, yeah, chasing yeah. Them up, up the escalator? That's got to be the exact same location. But, Actually, in fairness, that is a pretty good scene. I forgot about that one. That's a good scene. I don't know. I, I, I can't agree about the majority of the action. Just I find, I find so much of the blocking and execution just so clumsy. For instance, that sequence that I just had to roll my eyes at where all the, the good scanners are, are sort of together for this powwow. And they're just marveling <laughs> at, all this, at all this power that they have. And mm. they're so... And yet, for all their power, they don't notice when a couple of yeah. guys with giant fucking yeah. guns walk into the room in plain sight and start shooting them. Very disappointing. I felt so sorry for them. Are, are, are you, They're all dead. Are you referring to their, like, yoga session? Yes! <laughs> it's like, wow, you, you guys have such great powers of mental fucking telepathy kinesis or whatever the fuck it is. But you don't notice when two huge thugs with giant automatic weapons... Are about to kill you you know what you know what if i'm gonna play devil's because I, I i on face value i don't like that scene very much or i should i don't like that moment very much uh if i'm gonna play devil's advocate in that case i would say those uh those would i guess we could say those are the good scanners perhaps because it is referred to later on that michael ironside and uh what's the uh, stephen lack they're older and thus more powerful so the younger uh, less powerful scanners were so uh, <laughs> so concentrated 
on the Filipino powers that, that they couldn't tell that two people with huge fucking shotguns want. <laughs> okay. Just like, what I... kind of a scanner are you if you can't look in the room that you're in? Look, you know, you know what? I'm shocked because I seem to like this movie a lot. You guys don't, but no one is on Stephen Lack's ass because Stephen Lack, who's the lead role of this movie, he was basically cast. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. He was cast because Cronenberg liked his piercing, glassy eyes. That's fine. That's no, the, and, that's no, the same like, way like, that that's the same way that Peter Weller works in Naked Lunch. Yo, so here's the Interesting. thing. So he never clearly bothered to check if this guy can act. Now, here's the strange thing about Stephen Lack. I happen to find it incredibly entertaining to watch his performance on screen because he's god-awful. The man does not act. Like, every single line is delivered with, like, in a stilted manner. I, it's like he's basically reciting the lines. The guy looks like he's on crack or he looks like he's mentally... <laughs> or, he like like... He, or like he's in Cosmopolis? Yes, he looks Oops. like... He, yes, he looks like he's mentally handicapped, but he, he inflects in, in no emotion or no tone. But I think that's sort of why it works because of the character that he's playing. And so while his flat mm. non-delivery leaves a lot to be desired for most people, like the, main, the majority of, of, of viewers, I, I think it's at odds with the film's cold and like detached tone. So his large emotive eyes, of which is the reason why Cronenberg cast him, actually works given the character yeah I, that's why i like him in the film i don't think it's a classically good performance but it's also not a classically good movie so well, it's, no. it's also referred to I, I believe it's in fact the patrick mcguhan character or maybe it's the michael ironstein character i don't remember one of them the two says uh, uh, tries to uh uh, question they question uh, the Stephen Lack character. When what do you remember from your childhood? What are your first childhood memories? And and he can't remember anything. So I, you know, ultimately it probably has to do with the fact that he's a poor actor. But maybe you can maybe find an excuse somewhere in the, in the script that maybe that's why he's so bland. He, he literally doesn't have a character. He can't remember very much. Dude, the guy's like a nondescript, almost zombie-like creature. But you know what's really strange is I have a friend that talks and acts exactly like him. And there's nothing wrong with him. Everyone from his small town, they all talk really slow, and they all have this like blank expression to their to their to, to themselves, like when the, when they speak. Did you did you like trip and fall into the town from Children of the Corn or something? Well, his town is the funny thing is I won't mention who I'm talking about, but his town is extremely creepy. But they're the nicest people in the world. It's like it's like it's like Children of the Corn Bizarro World. It's like, an because, because it's like an it's like an incredibly dull version of Children of the Corn, where the Children <laughs> of the Corn are just really nice kids. Yeah, they're like really nice kids. It's extremely boring, like extremely boring. Kind of like, like Scanners. I really have nothing else to say about this movie. <laughs> I, I I think it's poorly executed, poorly written, ill conceived as a as a mainstream crossover. Maybe it made money, but it's not entertaining. Uh, well, I enjoyed the movie a lot, and I do like Patrick McGowan, who uh, who who plays Doctor Ruth, which. I love the fact that his name's Dr. Ruth. I also, like, later on in the film, we, we meet a scanner who's basically an ex-con, recently released, and now he's, like, the celebrated artist, and he claims his art keeps him sane, which I thought was so silly. But, mm -hmm. again, maybe that's why I, I enjoy this movie, because I do think it's silly, but I do think it's entertaining. But there's this great ex exchange between this actor and um, and our main protagonist, like, the two scanners, and he sits on, like... He sits in a giant cocoon sculpture that's a replica <laughs> of a human head. And it was just so weird. Yeah. And his, di his dialogue is quite odd in that scene as well. He's sort of slowly 
quietly describing that his art keeps him sane. Yeah, that's art one of a, one of the many examples of the supporting acting in this movie being horrifically bad. Okay, well, Cronenberg dealt with similar themes in the 1969 short film Stereo, in which a group of people are sub- subjected to like psychic experimentation. And so it's sort of like he mixed the idea from his short film with Philip K. Dick's novel, Scanner Darkly. And from my understanding, I think the the term scanner, I mean, it, it originated from a scanner darkly. That's like Philip K. Dick gave birth to that terminology, right? I believe. I don't know. So I know Philip K. Dick is an author who is known to have given birth to several ideas, I think. I don't know about that one. Okay, I'm pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure Cronenberg was just heavily influenced by Philip K. Dick, specifically Scanner Darkly. But I think the premise, seriously, the premise is somewhat really cool. Well, that's why I think, like, it's one of those movies that I actually totally would invite a remake or a TV series. Because I think that there's Ooh. a lot of promise in, in the premise. You know what's funny is when I finished watching the movie yesterday, the first thing... I thought of was this would make an awesome TV series. Right. Yeah. I mean, like psychic assassins squaring off, uh, you know, these shadowy corporations running the government or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting stuff that are totally not explored in any interesting way in the movie. Yeah. No, I mean, look, the movie lacks the logic and say the sexual subtext of early Cronenberg work. It's not as memorable as any Cronenberg film that came afterwards. Uh, there's a lot of loose ends, a lot of inconsistencies, but I do think there's a few interesting twists to consider. Like, I, I like the idea of, like, the way it's it compares the, like, there's a comparison of a computer's nervous system to that of a scanner. Mm. I, I love the scene in which Cameron uh, scans and hacks into the computer system via the telephone in order to obtain the information that he needs. Uh, it's, it's, it's strange because, you know, I, I <clears throat> obviously when you go into a film like this, you sort of have to accept that this is a sci-fi film. There's some weird concepts. It's very fantastical. And yet, despite all that, despite the fact that at least as concepts, I had expe- I had accepted pretty much everything that had uh, occurred up until then, notwithstanding the quality of it all. But that that I had a trouble. I had trouble buying that. Like what uh, he's he's so they can scan people. I guess that makes sense. Uh, you're a human. You scan another human. Now he can scan computers just because they both, quote unquote, have central nervous systems, neural systems, nervous systems. I don't know. I had trouble buying that. I thought that was a bit silly, despite the fact that everything in this movie is silly. I thought that was particularly silly. Except for the fact that it does have a a fascinating premise. I mean, like, think about it. So they take 240 women, they give them a specific drug, and therefore their children are born with these Mm. powers. And then later on, these corporations use these 246 children to, you know, do really, really bad things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a brilliant concept. They should totally, I mean, instead of making three straight-to-video sequels, they should take <laughs> the premise and actually create a really good TV series out of it. I but agree. Look, Just there's, there's absolutely, I don't think the movie cashes in on any of those ideas in an interesting way visually in terms of storytelling, in terms of theme. I, I would also add that the uh, I, I actually I agree I'm going to agree with you on that point, Ricky. But the 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 interest in in having that conspiracy, the the corporate conspiracy, where they are 
uh, injecting this fluid without giving too much of the film away. They're injecting a fluid into pregnant mothers, which is going to lead to something or other. I actually thought that was interesting. What I found bizarre was that's such an interesting concept. Why does it show up 20 minutes before the end? I thought they could have maybe worked with that a little bit earlier in the film. Maybe the perhaps 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 the story would have been maybe a bit richer. Uh, I thought there was sort of a, th it was a throwaway. It was a throwaway plot point. Interesting, but, very interesting, but it was a throwaway. But that's why I think it works as a really good conspiracy thriller, uh, because in terms of like, like, I mean, when we speak about the premise, it's not specifically because there's so-and-so that has a special superpower. It's because of the idea that there's these corporations that are creating these, these children, and it was a failed experiment, but still, there's 240 of these failed experiments running around on Earth, and they're taking mm. over. I think that's mm -hmm. a fantastic premise.